a listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Tannock. I'm a journalist. And Keith, today we're talking about the loss of faith in public institutions. And in particular, we're looking at an article in Vox by Sean Illing called The Elites Have Failed. So, first of all, do you agree the public has lost faith in public institutions? Well, I think there certainly has been a transformation. And um, as you say, this fellow, Sean Illing, is interviewing Martin Gurry, ex-CIA. So Gurry has retired from CIA and is now an academic. And a few years ago, simulated a debate, which I think over the years has been fully vindicated, namely that there's been a loss of faith in public institutions and elites and that nothing has actually replaced that loss of faith. So it's not as though we're all suddenly uh, finding a new group of individuals in whom to believe. It's just that we're coming to the end of what could be called um, the industrial model of government. So this is the idea that governments are pyramid-shaped, so you have people at the top who then give instructions all the way down. And so that's the old model of government. Now, unfortunately, or fortunately, we have new movements with no hierarchy and no spokespeople and with information technology. It's allowing very a, a much flatter infrastructure. So it's really the end of monopoly over information. And so we have a, a loss of authority or crisis of authority and a fragmentation about how we perceive reality. So these are very heavy subjects, almost like something in first-year philosophy comes under the heading of epistemology. How do we know what we know? But that, that is exactly the issue that we've got. So we know now that people will unite around bad events rather than positive ideas. There is an anger against the established order, be it in the United States, which is where Vox magazine is published, but it could also apply here in Australia. People are very alienated from the political process. And governments have difficulty in understanding what's going on below them uh, because the elites, the political class, are only used to dealing with other elites. They don't know how the ordinary person in the street actually thinks. Uh, they were at one point possibly an ordinary person in the street, but then they get sucked up into this huge institution called government which I include opposition political parties. It's just one political class. We have different labels, but they're all broadly the same. And you get these unexpected surges from below. Um, in one of his interviews that Martin Gurry has given on, um, on American television, he talks about the yellow vests in France. So the French government decided to do the right thing, uh, wanted to protect the environment, so it increased the price of petrol. And if you're living in Paris, that's fine. You've got, you've got a a good public transit system to use. However, if you're living out in the rural sector, you don't have much access to public transport. You do need petrol and your cost of petrol has just gone up. And that's why these yellow vests have, have been campaigning. They've got no clear spokesperson. Uh, they're angry. 
They've got no clear ideas about what you're going to do except obviously reduce the price of petrol. You know, they're not coming up with ideas about how you're going to reduce some French reliance on automobiles or the damage to the environment. These people were just simply united in what they were against rather than campaigning what they were for. So it is a new era that is now opening up. And, and Martin Gurry, in this interview from the Vox magazine, shows how the elites have failed. And our problem is that we're at a really, uh, this turning point in history, that one era of government is ending, and yet we don't yet know what the new era will be. And to that point, if politicians can't control the public anymore, how do they make sure that message is heard? I mean, they can try and be less removed from those everyday citizens, but what exactly does that mean in terms of governing? I think politicians would say, well, it's just so difficult to communicate with the general public because the general public have now got so many different sources of information. They don't just rely on the national TV program or the national radio station or a handful of printed newspapers. Who reads newspapers anymore? That's an old person's activity. <laughs> uh, so the politicians would say we have difficulty communicating. Uh, the people that we're trying to communicate with are themselves uh, subject to all sorts of issues, paying off the mortgage, they're worried about the kids, etc. We've been worried about COVID for two years. Uh, it's just so difficult to communicate with ordinary people. There is a great example about how you can communicate, which I think is worth bearing in mind, by Carmel Nyland. So Carmel Nyland was head of the Department of Community Services here in New South Wales. And Carmel inherited a department. She was permanent head, not a not a politician, permanent head. She took over a department uh, which was forever in the news, always controversial. Children kept dying in care and also a really horrendous situation. And she decided one of the major problems was staff didn't know for sure what the official line was going to be on some of these issues. So Carmel Nyland created CNN, Carmel Nyland News, because she realised now that every one of her employees, and they're scattered around the state of New South Wales, all of her employees have access to computers. So she would begin the day with CNN, Carmel Nyland News, saying, this is what we're doing in the department. This is what's really happening. Ignore what they're saying in the Sydney Morning Herald or the Daily Telegraph. This is the story. Um, and so in the old days, the head of a department would communicate to the deputy heads, who would then communicate with the assistants. And then as the message went down the line, it got more and more confused until it got to the ordinary people on the front line and who knows what sort of message they got. Carmel Nyland realised that she could communicate all the way down through her organisation, this vast organisation, immediately in one go. Now, that, that is certainly a good way, but, of course, from her point of view, she would say, well, look, I have staff who want to find out what's going on at head office. So she had an easier task than, say, um, the politicians of today because they're trying to communicate with citizens on a diverse range of subjects. And some people are just so turned off politics, they're never going to pay attention. So if we take a step back then uh, and look at the internet, which has opened up the world, but how much is the internet to blame for this loss of faith and this destabilisation of political systems because of the overabundance of information and with that, the disinformation that comes? You know, I'm not sure if it's helpful to be sort of looking to, for people or institutions to blame. I think one has to recognise that we're just living in a changed era, that the internet amplifies eccentric viewpoints 
which in an earlier era before the internet would not have got much publicity. So if you're living in a small village and you might have somebody with strange ideas, that person wouldn't be able to communicate those ideas very far. Now, because the internet has democratized information, you are able to insert your information through YouTube, through Facebook and other social media. You can do that and people have no way of knowing whether you're the smartest person in your village or the village idiot. (laughs) And it's interesting, when you look at the aftermath of the 2020 US election, it's an example of this crisis of authority that's talked about and following that, the storming of the US Capitol. I mean, there are still so many Republicans that genuinely believe the election was a fraud. So they believe Trump's claims that the election was stolen despite there being credible evidence out there that that's not the case. Well, the evidence is credible to you, but obviously not to Republicans. (laughs) Good point. This is your problem. (laughs) We're we're living in a demassified society, right? In the old days, you and your contemporaries would be reading the Sydney Morning Herald or some other news outlet, and that would frame, uh, it's what's called the frame of discourse. That would set you up for the day um, so you you could have a conversation, say, oh, I read this in the newspaper. Everybody would know what newspaper you're referring to. That no longer applies because you've got different inputs of information that's coming through to you. And the algorithms in your computer treat you differently from the way in which, say, they treat me or they treat your husband or whatever, uh, because the algorithms in the computer have worked out this person is particularly interested in one aspect of this matter the same subject, but somebody else looking at that same topic would get other information. So the the algorithms are actually putting us down tunnels based on what our previous behaviour has been. So we're actually digging ourselves deeper and deeper into holes. And we've talked about this before, that echo chamber where people's opinions are reflected back to them by this information through some of these channels. Absolutely. And this is a, a very good point in terms of explaining the election results, that, uh, you know, the way that you say, well, the election was clearly, you know, uh, won by Biden. But if you're following certain media in the United States, they will just reassure you that, no, Donald Trump won and the election was stolen. And he's going to be repeating all of this in November of this year for the midterm elections. Not that Trump himself personally is running, but he's getting all of his candidates lined up for when he runs in the presidential election, which will be two years on. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. I'm Sasha Tannock, and Keith, today we're talking about the loss of faith in public institutions. So we've reflected on the US election, but what about COVID-19 and the misinformation surrounding the virus and the threat it poses and that loss of faith in, for example, health, public health institutions and the advice given by public health? And in the US, we've got people rejecting that it's real outright and a lot of people rejecting it. Um, but even here in Australia, as we get to sort of the third year and people are getting tired of those public messages, it does feel that somewhat people are, if they're not making up their own rules, they're applying them in their own <laughs> way to their own circumstance in some cases. Yeah, and I think the elites have done badly, you know, the way that they keep changing their minds about things. Um, it's very confusing to very keep confusing. up, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't know what the pub- current public health order is, to use a New South Wales expression, PHO. You're not sure what it is in terms of, say, wearing a mask inside a building or whatever. So it, it just they just keep on changing. Now, they would say, well, we've got to change because the facts themselves are changing. But it makes it very confusing for individuals. Now, in this article, Martin Curry talks about truth is essentially an act 
of trust. So, for example, do you believe in quarks? Uh, I do, but I've never seen a quark. And even the nuclear physicists have never seen a quark. But they, but I believe in quarks because they believe in quarks. I have confidence in those as nuclear physicists to say there are quarks in this world. They're so small, nobody can see them. But we believe that there are quarks in the universe. We trust the experts. And you trust the experts. Great example, yes. Yeah. So this is from the Martin Gurry interview. Very good point. So what we're seeing is people who are saying, well, I just don't trust experts now because there's this rebellion against expertise. And this, this, I think, leads us into all sorts of very dangerous paths because people are, are trying to give good advice, honest advice, what they think is honest advice. And people are saying, no, you sound too much like an expert and we don't want to hear that. <laughs> and what about the irony that by rejecting information from experts or public or mainstream institutions, many people then end up believing in or putting their faith in conspiracy theories and misinformation? Because yeah. conspiracy theories uh, help you make sense of the world. Usually there's somebody out there to get you. And if things are going badly, it gives you a reason why things are going badly. It's not because of any failings on your part. It's because of the Jews or the Masons or the Russians or CIA, whatever. You've always got somebody out there to blame. And I'm not sure that conspiracy theories are terribly helpful. My problem is that the phrase conspiracy theory was invented at the time of the Kennedy assassination. Right, so that's November 1963, and there was a big dispute, which continues to this day, about the role of Lee Harvey Oswald. Was he involved? Uh, was he the assassin? Did he act alone? And CIA uh, were represented at the inquiry by the former head of CIA, and they invented a term called conspiracy theory to dismiss anybody who is challenging the standard point of view. And, and that's what conspiracy theories do. They challenge the established point of view. And, of course, as we now know, Lee Harvey Oswald may have been involved in the shooting. He certainly didn't do, he certainly didn't do the killings himself. So what started out as a conspiracy theory by CIA to keep the attention focused on this lone individual has obscured the attention away from there being some sort of conspiracy to murder the president. Because a lot of people don't want to believe there could be a successful assassination of President Kennedy in this way. It must be a lone nut. No, it was it was an organised conspiracy. And that becomes then a conspiracy theory if you want to dismiss all of that. So I have a problem with the, the sort of use of conspiracy theories because sometimes conspiracy theories are correct. And we see this in the field of science. So one famous scientist said that science progresses one death at a time. In other words, if people hold on to an old view, then die off and we get new views coming forward. Let's take a very standard example. Uh, doctors who wash their hands after conducting operations. The first doctor to make that proposal that you wash your hands. After, not before. After the operation. About, right. So, you know, everything is nice and clean. So mm-hmm. after and then also before the next patient, he was put into a mental home. Now, of course, we celebrate him for being a very sensible medical practitioner. So that was a conspiracy theory, if you like. You see the problem I have with this term, Mm. conspiracy theory? Sometimes conspiracy theories are correct. You do need to be sceptical when you're hearing information from sources. I think the problem is that we've just gone too far in the other direction. 
And what worries me is the extent of negativity in our society. For me, there's an irony, and Martin Gurry, to to his credit, identifies this irony when in this article when he talks about uh, the fact is that we're better off today than we were back in the 20th century, let alone the 18th or the 15th centuries. You know, we're, we're, we're healthier. The environments in which we work are better, if you're talking about Australia or, in his case, the United States. And yet people would say, oh, no, life's getting worse and worse. And I think part of that problem goes back to what you were saying about how the, the media just emphasised negativity, what is wrong, and people just become very pessimistic, even though if you actually look at the facts of the situation, people are living longer and they're living healthier, the working conditions are better, medicine has improved. Every year you live, medicine gives you another three months. And yet I come across people who... Um, have almost a nostalgia for life back in the Middle Ages or something. Mm. It is interesting that people are willing to believe a fake news story that their friend shares on Facebook, for example, though, but yet distrust a government institution. Because it's the element of trust, you see. Mm. I trust what I read on Facebook. Let me me just say I don't read any social media, right? (laughs) But if if I know you and you've got the Facebook posting, I will be more likely to believe it because I know you and I trust you. Hmm. And this is how people get betrayed. Have we lost the ability to analyse information, well, though? That's exactly it. Hmm. That is exactly the problem, that we need uh, more critical thinking skills. And and I think that's what we've got to develop. That, that's, what, that's what we need. This is what Malcolm Gladhill talks about, uh, the 10,000 hours, that you spend 10,000 hours really getting into a particular subject. The problem is with social media today that anybody can pick up a mobile phone and start broadcasting their own information even if they know nothing about the subject. So where and how can the public find their truth? Does it come down to critical thinking or where are they going to find these new sources of truth? Well, the advice I give people is that you read widely and you read critically. So um, I don't think there's any one particular media outlet that I would say this is truth. My view is that you do have to do your own research. And a lot of people say, look, I've got children to raise. I've got a powerful mortgage. I'm not going to spend my time trying to understand, say, Russia and Ukraine. Therefore, you know, they, they will not like that idea of having to read widely and read critically because they would say, look, that, that's not my thing. And yet that's in, what we've got to encourage people to do. If they want to be involved in politics, then they've really got to make it their speciality along with other things. And it, what we're talking about here is the whole issue of gullibility. Uh, Let me just go right outside politics. One of the issues that I now have with YouTube and a few other social media outlets are all the get-rich-quick schemes that are being advertised. And I'm horrified at the way in which vulnerable people are spending money doing educational courses, et cetera. Now, I think education is good. I'm a teacher. been doing so for decades. But what worries me is we've got all these startups now being advertised on social media where you, you learn to do a particular thing. The information is really not going to help you make a, a living, but but people just feel so vulnerable and that is them being exploited. And that's what worries me, that people are not able to stand back and say, look, this is absolute nonsense. This is snake oil. And so I've got to avoid it. I, can't, I see it all the time in the area, of, say, of real estate speculation or Bitcoin. Ah, what a good <laughs> example about how people can waste money. Um, I agree with Warren Buffett. You don't invest in anything you don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, it is true that people's vulnerabilities are being exploited really by many different schemes, yeah. to your point. I do think kids need to be taught that critical thinking, though, into the future will be key. Fascinating topic. Thanks, Keith. I do look forward to our chat again next week. Thank you. That was this week's episode of Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Make sure you tune in next week when we'll break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Listener.